Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello. Hello! And welcome again to the Hobcast Book Show, show number 54. My name is Adrian Hobart. And my name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books. And Hobeck Books is a UK independent publisher of the following genres. Thrillers. Crime. Suspense. And mysteries. Well, it's been another busy week for us. And this week again, we are speaking to Dan Morgan. It's part two of the interview that we started last week, where we took a very honest appraisal of the indie publishing scene. And uh, it carries on in that vein. But there is Rebecca's random question to look forward to as well. <laughs> At least I don't have to come up with one on the on no. the fly this time. Indeed, indeed. So Dan Morgan, a.k.a. Morgan Green, uh, writer of Scandi Noir, uh, fantastic uh, guest. And uh, we've been sort of liaising with him ever since, really, haven't we? Well, in fact, we've, we've set up a system, a sort of a system, where we're going to catch up with him once a month and discuss things that we do. We'll, we'll pick a particular aspect of publishing. So we're going to start off with... Amazon, yeah, just a sort of the the KDP dashboard and and setting up initial setting up. Which yeah, are... I think it's sort of hands across the ocean because he's over in Canada. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, I think we we're looking to uh, you know both of us discover things about you know things we may have spotted that he's not seen or you know. But I, I get the impression that we're going to be getting a lot more out of it than him, perhaps. But no, I, I'm not so sure. You say that, but I, I've already exchanged quite a few emails with him mm. since we decided to do this, and we were talking about launch strategy. Yeah, and I'm already interested in what he does, which is different to often what we're told is is sort of you know, yeah. the best practice. So, I mean, that's the that is the nub of actually what our conversation's about, really, which is that there are so many opinions out there, and so many people putting themselves out there as experts at doing what they're doing. And the truth is that no one solution fits everybody. If you know, as there are some spectacularly successful people out there who are doing really, really well. We listened to a podcast yesterday with two sisters who are selling gazillions of books, you know, really significant sums of money coming in. But did we learn almost anything from the interview itself? It was more sort of basking in their glory as opposed to actually passing on anything practical. No, we we were listening and we kept waiting for the point where they were actually going to tell us something about how they got to the point that they are currently at. But it didn't happen. No. It didn't happen. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, I think many people listening to this will know what sort of podcast it was and where it came from. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, that's, I mean, I, you know, it's great to hear success, but at the same time, it's not really applicable. In fact, you were looking at something this morning, which yes. was really interesting, which was... So uh, it's a survey, and um, I can't remember who uh, the survey was conducted by, but it was an American company, and it was a survey of... Um, independent self-published authors and it covered all sorts of ground it covered the marketing strategies it covered income and I think it was the income question that struck me the most so um, it had a bar chart showing how many authors so just shy of 50% of authors were uh, making up to $99 a month right 
So that's half. I think I think that's actually that feeds into the interview very well because I think there needs to be a big dose of reality. There's a lot of people out there inflating the prospects of making big money being independent. Well, the the amount of people making over I think it was a million or something like yes. that. Yes. Minuscule. It was two percent or something, yeah. wasn't it? But still, you know, if you're one of those two percent, fantastic. Remember that that club. But the fact is that almost fifty percent of indie authors were doing less than a hundred dollars. Mm. Um and there aren't enough people talking about the the, the battle to get books sold. No, I to want to hear. I want to hear about the the people who struggled and given up. I want to hear what happened. Yeah, and there aren't just many. as much. Well, I mean, you know, it's part of the, the the ecosystem. Is that of course, if you're selling a course which tells you how to, you know, purports to tell you how to sell books, you're going to just talk to the people who've been success stories. Well, you're selling a dream. Yes, you are, and. Um, you know, it doesn't. You know, you don't have to be a mathematician to figure out if a thousand people sign up for your thousand dollar course, that's a million dollars. And you only have. To, I mean, but the, I, I would argue that we do tend to hear the same voices come round every year talking about how X course made them rich. Mm. Uh, so there can't be that many, um, uh, you know, varietal you know, members of the of the community who are doing, you know, following the same thing. And I know anecdotally speaking to people, friends of mine who have also tried this indie route um, who are struggling. Anyway, look, we uh, that's not to say that we are, but we've had our best fortnight. Oh, it's been amazing. It's been a great fortnight. And, you know, it's still not where we want to be by any means. We're not getting greedy. We just want to be... We just want to <laughs> get break even. Yeah, we do. But we have had our best... Fortnight. Yeah, and we also we also want success for our authors because you know we they feel quite it, passionately. Yeah. That Absolutely, they, you know we sign them up because they they've written amazing books, and so we want everyone to read them. Yeah, it? so it's progress. But yeah, it's, it's, but it's not it's not the end result that we're after yet. But that's what we're working at. So yeah, we, we're we're enjoying our best fortnight, and if we can continue to to go beyond that then we're in the territory where we want to be. So yeah. we still need to get to another level, but we've jumped to a level which is encouraging. It's a good, solid start to the year. Well, on that theme, um, one of the things we do, we, we, we publish in three formats, and uh, one takes a lot longer than the others. Audiobooks, you know, no secret, take a long time to do. And I, I finished a project uh, yesterday, or at least... I sent the audio off to uh, Mark Whiteman of Waking the Tiger, and I've worked, uh, well, you've seen it. I mean, I've worked extremely hard, especially the last couple of days when I was trying to make some corrections so to some pronunciations. Yesterday is a good example. I, I woke up briefly at, what, four something? Four? Yeah, it was about four, yeah. Four o'clock in the morning, and the bed was empty. It's 4.20, <laughs> I went downstairs, and I started work. I yeah. think I, I, just before you left the room, I woke up enough to say, oh, are you going? <laughs> You said I'm going to do some work, and I fell asleep. Three hours later, you were still at it. Yeah, so... that's right. I, I went back to bed at eight o'clock. Well, you'd actually before... done half a day's work. Yeah, pretty much before uh, I got up. And and the nature of it is so I'll explain what what I was doing. So the I mean, Mark's book is set in 1939, 1940, Singapore, and there are a lot of Asian names in there. Um, you know, lots of Japanese names and things like that. I, I got some of them. You know out i wasn't quite on where they should be and we've been unpicking that a little bit so i mean if you've got a word for instance stretsu, 
which is a red light district in Japanese, or at least in Singapore, you know, version of Japanese. Um, I'd said it Sutoretsu, which is how it's phonetically seen yeah. on the page, but it's. And I would have said Sutoretsu, which is slightly tighter, but yeah. not quite as tight as. Well, I mean, there are thirty-seven occurrences of this in the book, so I've had to re-record all the sections which it it pops up in. Yeah. And then insert it back into the audio, the original uh, recording, and try and match it for sound quality. So that's another little job that you have to do. It's, you know, you want to get the volume right, can't have a sudden, you know, that sort of, you know, change of amplification. And that's that's painstaking. But it's a mental tautology because you are you're trying to find. So you go through the text, you record the bits. Then you have to go retro, find which chapter you've actually just recorded from, find the chapter, find the spot in the chapter, which might be 20, 25 minutes long, where the audio needs to be inserted. Then highlight both the bit that you're inserting and the bit you're removing, cut and paste over the top of them, set the sound. It's a really, really painstaking job. It sounds like it's a bit like doing that baked bean jigsaw. You know the jigsaw? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, you've got this baked bean. Yeah, <laughs> and a whole load of baked beans, and you think my baked bean might fit in that gap there, but you don't know for right, sure. Right, right. <laughs> it, it's it's that. Yeah, it, that's how it felt. So it's it's painstaking, and I'm really proud of this production. Um, it's one of the best I've ever done, probably the best. But you know, I I I get better every time. I was going to say. I mean, each one you do. Yeah, I've done twenty now. I mean, that's natural, but yeah, and uh, I'm I'm aiming to do a book a month. Um, which requires working on it five, six days a week, really, uh, to get it there. I might, you know, it might even get quicker than that, depending on the length of the book, of course, which you know uh, is is a is a movable feast. But um, yeah, I'm proud of it, and we hope to release it by the end of February. But it's with Mark now, so he can check over what I've done. Yeah, and he might even be listening while we're speaking. He may very well be. <laughs> uh, and of course, we released last week. We released Malcolm Holling Drake's Catchers Catch Can. Uh, now it's been caught up. I mean, this is one of the, the issues you have with audiobooks is that you we send it to Find Away Voices, who are based in Ohio, and Find Away have deals with forty four different platforms. The biggest of which, of course, at the moment, still is Audible, and Audible or ACX, um, who run the sort of back end part of the Audible operation, are so mixed in how fast they get through things. So it's still not up as we speak. Um, They've had a, had it with them for about three weeks now. Yeah, we so, check every day, don't we? Yeah, and sometimes books just get lost in their system. Sometimes they go up before they're supposed to go we've up. We've had which, both. Yeah, we've had both. So uh, we'll, you know, hold on there for a couple of weeks and then we'll have to start nudging, yeah. find a way to find out what's happened to it. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with it technically, as far as I know. Uh, it should be fine. So, and you know, it can be the smallest little thing that can... Uh, on one chapter that knocks you out. Yeah, we could just have got stuck in the system. I think that's what happened with yeah. sleeping dogs. It just yeah. got stuck in the system. I mean, they're a mess at the moment in terms of their, you know, uploading schedule. But it's on Google Play, it's on Scribed, it's on Kobo, it's on Nook, it's on a number of platforms already. So, you know, you can find it out there, believe me. But it's <laughs> just, and it's available also from us at Hobet Books, but it is not quite on Audible. Anyway, I've been digressing tons but we were going to talk about one of these big news stories we mentioned it last week and which was a report suggesting that 
independent publishers like ourselves are really struggling to produce paperbacks cost-effectively yeah. because the cost of raw materials has skyrocketed. Like everything, the cost of living crisis that we're heading for in the UK, everything has gone up in cost. And we found out this week exactly that. Yeah, so yes, we it, it happened to us. So um, the Genesis Inquiry has, has done very well, particularly in paperback. It, it does seem to be the sort of book that people like to have a physical copy of. Um, we printed um, Genesis Inquiry with Clays in Suffolk. Uh, we reprinted in, uh, I think, November, so very soon after publication. Yep. And we found out last week that um, we were running lower stock. Now, when you reprint a paperback with a uh, traditional printer, you have to consider that it takes two to three weeks to get stock. So you have to sort of try and anticipate when you're actually going to run out of stock. So we um, asked for a quote. And the paper costs have gone up by 20%. Yeah. The overall printing cost has gone up 20% um, on in the space of... Well, that's a month and a half. Two, two, yeah. Two, yeah, two months maybe. So, I mean, you know, anecdotally, and of course the books that are, you've got the article yeah, in front of you, are revealing that... Uh, there are other titles that are facing 40% increases in costs. Yeah, and this, so, is, this is a straightforward paperback publication that we're dealing with. Here. We're not talking about anything specialist or colour or, you know, to, within the pages. This is, uh, you know, it's not a, an academic book. But the fact is that more and more people are going to have to accept that paperbacks are going to cost more than 10 quid yeah, in so this country. Bigger publishers are in a better position because they can... Uh, they've got bigger print runs. They've got better relationships with printers overseas, so they can sort of chop around a little bit for cheaper costs. And they're also giving themselves nine months to a year to produce something because they know they, that's what, how they schedule it. But small independent pu- publishers are struggling. Um, so uh, Vicky Ellis, who's the sales director of Clay's, she told the bookseller um, that, that they're, they're experiencing unprecedented inflation across all the raw materials and um, they're saying it's due to uh, Brexit-related problems, fuel and freight costs um, and just the price of the raw materials has gone up as well and all those things combined at the same time. And it has a massive impact impact on a publisher such as us who want to print 200 copies of a book. You know, that's it's gone up by a fifth. That's a big hike. So the question we have is do we put the price of the book up? So this particular book is 9 99 to carry that cost over completely would make it eleven ninety nine. Would people buy the Genesis Inquiry eleven ninety nine? No, I don't know. Well, I think they're going to get used to seeing prices of that deal. But then again, you know, if you and we're doing a quality paperback pr- production, we're not doing the what you can buy at Tesco. No, style thing, which they which do would, use cheaper paper. They do much. It's much cheaper production. You know, it really is quite rough and ready. Really, if you look at it. Uh, and that's how they can sell them for like you know a fiver or something. Mm. Um, but we're not doing that. With this is a, a quality production. But you know, we're not in a position where we can really absorb twenty percent increases in costs. No, frankly, no. You know, because our margins weren't big anyway. Because you give the retailers a minimum forty five percent of the cover price. Then on top of that, so you've got the production cost. Mm. It's three pounds a unit now. That's what it's gone up to. Yeah, roughly. Uh, that's with Clay's, which was a lot cheaper than Ingram Spark, have also gone up as well. Um, the print-on-demand service that most people use, and we've used quite a lot. So they've gone up beyond uh, £4.50 per copy. Yeah, no, it's, it's significant. I yeah, it really is. It really is. Then you've got to pay for uh, the storage, 
Yep. And then the distribution the distributors uh, who are gardeners take 12%. Doesn't leave you a lot. In fact, it doesn't leave anything really. That's the that's the truth of it. No. That 20% increase. It's going to be eaten up. Yeah. Quite significantly. You know, so it's important that we put our books in front of people. Of course it is. But we're doing it for free effectively. Neither, you know, if it might be we might have 50 pence to share with Ollie. Yeah. Something like that, a quid. It's not worth it. Unless we put the price up, but we can't do that. If we, you know, we could, we that is a risk. We put the price up and then people make that decision. I can't afford that. I think I think the things are going to they're going to rock it. Now we're going to experiment at some point with hardback production through KDP. Um, I mean, the the alternative is that all you know we take it out of bookshops. It's, it seems to be there's a lot of demand. People going in anecdotally or ordering from bookshops Ollie's book, um, and that's great. But they're not stocking it sort of natively. No, they have to order it through yeah, Waterstones. Right, and that's a problem. That's why we don't necessarily know where we stand in terms of stock levels. It's it been really harder. it has been really tricky to monitor stock levels. I have to ask Clay's to check the stocks. There's no system. There's nothing for me to check online. I know they're working towards having a system that eventually we'll be able to just, you know, type in the ISBN or say 50 copies or whatever. But now I have to ask them and I do feel bad for bothering them. They're very busy people and it takes them two or three days to respond. Yeah. And even then we have to think, okay, we've got so many copies, two to three weeks till we get new copies. It's going to cost us this to get a reprint. It's it's a really difficult juggling act. It is. And we're taking the risk because, we, you know, who knows, that demand might just dry up and we've got 150 books sat on a slab somewhere. Yeah. Well, in this particular case, we know we have to reprint. We just have to. Yes, we do. And we do. we're not thinking of putting the price up right this moment. So... Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think the thing is that there, there's a question here, right? And this is a difficult one. We want to support bookshops. We feel very passionate. We've had a number of the of booksellers, bookshops on our program, and we love independent bookshops particularly. And we tolerate Waterstones, and we feel quite aggrieved about W. Smith, as you heard <laughs> last week. But we do, and it's important to authors to feel that their books are being printed and being distributed into bookshops if if uh, you know it's, it is just part of you know it's an aspiration people want to see their books on shelves but it's getting to the point where we have to decide whether it's worth the risk because you look at our figures 98 percent of our sales in the amazon environment come from either ebook sales or kindle uh, on demand reading you know uh, kindle unlimited 98 percent of our revenue two percent comes from paperbacks mm. and, and, it, and another good example is uh so it was one of our books we sold via ingram spark and it was I, I can't remember how many but it was about 20 books of this particular book and um i the the report doesn't tell you who has bought the books but i think it's somebody like um you know those booksellers that they appear on amazon um they're not, they're not quite second-hand booksellers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I know what you're Because they get quite a high discount. But on the report, it it said that we were paid 17 pence in royalties. So that's what? 17 divided by two. So nine and a half pence between us and the author. And the author questioned this. They, they pointed this out and they said, is that real? Is that true? And it was. So on the paperbacks, it, <laughs> it's not even a cup of coffee. No. 
So those are that's a big dose of reality, and I know that sounds depressing, but you know, I suppose we are asking ourselves the question, like so many other independent, uh, you know, publishers at the moment who are ebook ebook only, or they do paperbacks once the ebook has paid itself out and has proved there's a demand. There's, a, you know, uh, we've got an example: Tina Baker, who we spoke to at Bloody Scotland. Her books are going into supermarkets at the moment, but her publisher. I think it's Viper. she's with Viper. Mm. That was out as an ebook. Call Me Mummy was out as an ebook first, and there was quite a, a lag between that becoming a, a paperback because they need to prove, prove proof there's of... proof of demand. Mm. Um, Jasper Joffe, as we mentioned last week, uh, doesn't do paperbacks. Well, they, they do on Amazon. Do, but yeah, through KDP. So yeah. that's purely on demand. Yeah, and that may be the model we have to go to because we can still satisfy. Um, we can still buy author copies for review and things like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And that's one of the things that, again, is uh, one of the hidden costs of indie publishing is that most reviewers want physical copies. So that's a big expense. And all, all of the competitions bar a few, but basically 90% of the of the of the of the novel competitions that we enter books into want physical copies and yeah. a number of them and then on top of that you've got to send them to the copyright libraries yes <laughs> copyright libraries are actually costing us a, a, a lot of money um but talk about the reviewers and i understand people who say they prefer physical books so there, there are people who say they can't read kindles because they get migraines and things like that yeah, yeah, yeah. but there were I was really pleased one reviewer this week. Um, she normally has a physical copy and she sent me an email and she said, um, I understand that, you know, it's difficult for small publishers to um, pay for physical copies for reviewers. Please send me an ebook. It's fine. I, I can ha- I'm happy to read it on the Kindle. And, you know, that <laughs> that understanding of our situation was very touching, I think, because yeah. it is a cost. And we know that reviews are done for nothing. They do it for love. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm not. I'm not having it. a go at the reviewers in that sense. It's just that you know, I think there needs to be an awareness. Plus, also, you know, there is an environmental cost for every copy. Mm. Let's be honest. So, there is a crossroads coming. I think that you know, costs go up much more than that, and it really is you know in territory. But we, we, you know, listen to these sisters who write their dark romance books, <laughs> and they've they've been. You know, uh, their process seems a bit chaotic since they sort of do alternate chapters or whatever. And they've been writing books of 310,000 words, 900 plus pages, epically long. And their paperbacks are nearly 20 quid on Amazon now as a result of the scale. Oh, well, wasn't one twenty four? Yeah, I saw one for twenty four ninety nine. Yeah. yeah. And people are prepared to pay that. But I mean, I don't know what sort of margin you get on it. And I was also wondering how many people buy that or is they just offer that? And then they know that their ebook sales are going to be so massive. Yeah. Well, I also wonder. This is my other thought: is what is the print quality going to be like in terms of the binding? Because it has we've... to be multi-volume. You know, as in it would have to be. Now you... I know this um, because uh, one of our one of our books um, was just under the top limit for Ingram. Now that would be a Lewis. But <laughs> when I sent when I morning Lewis, <laughs> we know you're listening. When I uploaded the files, I had a message that said, you know, be aware that you are at the top limit for single binding, as in, you know, one physical book. So I assumed that those two sisters, it would have to be two volumes. Yeah. It doesn't say that on the... um... How can you stretch a romance 
in the dark fantasy world to 310,000 words. I just don't understand. I think you need to read one to find out. I'm not reading that much. <laughs> I'm still working through submissions. Incidentally, we uh, we ought to mention that you know we're going to start discussing with a couple more authors this week. So. Yes, we've got we've got an actual face to face. We won't we say who, but a face to face at the golf club, which yeah. is very exciting. And um, someone who's uh, who's in, you know outside this these borders at the moment, but um, very exciting. Some really good submissions, and you know, I'm just sorry that we've taken so long to get round to them. It's mainly me because no, uh, no, no, no. I don't, you can't say that. It's no, both you, of us. But you do two jobs, and I do. Oh. No, and I'm sure. I'm reading, so I've, I'm having a, a little break from submissions, and I'm reading the third Quirk Files at the moment from AB Morgan, and I'm Ali. loving yeah. it. If you're listening, Alison, I'm loving it so far. It made me giggle. You made me giggle this morning with the, the character called Hazel Nut. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, it was fantastic. Uh, our second story. Uh, we're going to get to the interview shortly. Don't worry. We, we I know we're jabbering on. We did say to ourselves we we're going to start tightening up our podcasts, but um, we failed this week again. Uh, I like the we there. <laughs> well, apparently, yeah, no, I've been jabbering. Uh, the fact is that uh, there is a lot of demand out there, apparently, for um, the rights for turning books into TV and film productions because of the number of streaming services that have accelerated out of you know, all proportion, really. There's a hunger out there for books to convert. So uh, the books that are reporting that uh, it's never been a better uh, optioning rights sort of market and uh, you know that's encouraging and a lot of um, if you can get that working for you that's a very important piece of income and that's something that we're making our emphasis at London Book Fair so what we're going to do is we're going to a rights conference the day before and so that we really get ourselves clued in as to what you know is expected and what we expect to do but I think we're going to use London Book Fair to go around all the different agencies and agents to try and find one that fits us mm. to represent our books in that marketplace, and I presume start selling into Frankfurt, which is in October, and I mean there are dozens of other book fairs. I mean I was looking at one agency who had a list of their calendar. Of, there's one a week. They basically live out of a suitcase. They think. do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They split up between them. You know, they're, they're based in in California and in London. Uh, they have lots of different sub agents. Um, in different territories and that's what we really need because I mean in fairness I mean we don't really know that market Um, and I think a third party if we can find one that understands our values and what we're trying to achieve would be great Mm. so that's going to be the aim for London Book Fair as much as anything else yes and that's in April like I said to you I said it's not a holiday it's not a jolly we are going to be working very hard and very tired by the end of the day it's an exhausting environment (laughs) it is I mean we went for what one day or two. Uh, we went for no, two. We, oh, one and a half, I think. Yeah, actually. we were absolutely exhausted. So I'm actually going to put myself in a sort of um, a couple of months of um, sort of fitness drive, just so I've got the stamina to be able to withstand. It's so hot there as well. Yeah, and uh, it's Olympia just is just ghastly hot. Stimulation all the time because there's people, people, people everywhere. Yeah, so yeah, there's tens of thousands of people. There's no there little corners the that you can hide no, no, with your book. There's no no quiet space. <laughs> So it's going to be a big challenge and one we're looking forward to. We know it's the next thing that we need to achieve for the company and for our authors. And so that's what we're going to go and do. But apparently, uh, according to Luke Speed, primary agent for book to film rights at Curtis Brown, um, he said he's never seen it like this. Uh, It's only going one way, he says. Uh, He estimated that around 60% of the biggest 
projects on TV at the moment are based on books. That's brilliant. I mean, that's great for us, isn't it? It gives us optimism. Well, it does. But, I mean, let's let, a note of caution. A note of caution that, you know, you can get optioned. That, that brings money in. That's great. The actual final delivery of said projects can take a lot longer. Oh, I know that. It can sit in development for years. Yeah. Or, and, and the rights can move between different places. But you know, there's been some interesting one or two of our books, which is great. Um, you know, nothing's come to fruition yet. Uh, and they've been approaching the authors as opposed to us. So we don't really know the, the substance and the, the mm. nature of these conversations. So, uh, but we are we are optimistic that there, there, there's some some trade to be done there. And of course, the other thing is that we're looking for someone to represent us for translation rights, which we own the translation rights for a lot of our books. We're doing the audio in-house, but the translation rights and the TV rights, different thing altogether. Yeah, it is. So that's something we need to go and, and find find uh, somebody to represent us and so yeah we've um, got a list of all the exhibitors and we're working through and trying to uh, figure out who our targets are so it's, yeah it's been busy it's been busy it's going to be a very busy year it is it's a big year it's a really big year for us anyway let's get to our interview because we have jabbered um, I know constructively but <laughs> we have jabbered let's talk again to Dan Morgan to remind you then he is the uh, known as the more he's known as an author as Morgan Green, and he has been writing some Scandi uh, noir series, which has been extremely successful. He's now based in Canada. He moved out there in November. We were discussing, you know, how bears track across their front porch and scare Leave the dog. Poor and, marks. <laughs> yeah, that sort of thing. But we're going back into the substance of the nature of the indie market and what it really takes to, you know, get yourself into position to be successful and it's a tough battle let's talk to dan morgan you know i i get you know authors every now and then coming to me saying you know i you know i i what what have you done you know how did you do that you know would you recommend going in you know how would you what would you say the best thing i could do in this situation is you know do you think i should go traditional do you think i should do this and it's it's so hard because you if you go traditional you know or or kind of even you know, with indie press like yourselves, you know, you hand over all of that creative control and almost, you know, it's it's very difficult, I think, to let go of that. Whereas if you are pure indie, you know, like for me, if I'd have signed, if I'd have signed a deal, say with, you know, Joffy or somebody for Bearskin and I'd written, you know, in the three book deal, Bearskin, Idle Hands on Fresh Meat and Idle Hands. At mm. the end of that three book, they would have been like, yeah, we're not going to renew your deal. You know, these these are not selling, they're not converting, you know, and that would have been career over. But I think as an indie, you have the chance then to kind of step back and make those decisions. And and I know that there's a lot of horror stories out there as well for people who go traditional and they put, you know, a book out and it's perhaps not got the kind of kind of cover they wanted or the story's been changed or the kind of the editor's kind of really gone to town or the, or the publisher said, oh, you know, it's a bit too much like another title. We have to change this. We have to change that. And it just doesn't sell or it doesn't convert. And then, you know, the author is saying, well, that wasn't my vision for it. And now mm. it hasn't sold and now you're punishing me for it. And that's not fair. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, tough, whatever, you know, it's just, it's, it's all, it's all up in the end. I think that, you know, with, within, you know, an aging kind of um, predominant readership, especially in crime and thriller, you know, I think that a lot of new readers now who are coming through younger readers, they're not necessarily picking up, you know, the, the, the torch of kind of crime and thriller readership when there's so much kind of rich 
you know, young adult fantasy and, and that kind of stuff to sink their teeth into. There's not a lot of young adult crime thriller to kind of lead them into the, you know, to the old guard. But uh, no, there is, there is, there is a, an opportunity, I think, for, for, for a, a, a generation of authors to go in and, and find that way of, of doing it. But as you say, fantasy is, is, is uh, urban fantasy, fantasy, you know, Hunger Games kind of stuff. Uh, and obviously, um stuff inspired by harry potter you know it's that's their gateway into reading isn't it and 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 it's, so it's um but, uh, it's it is tough it is tough but the, the the sort of things that the current generation current young people generation read as children is not the same as what we read we read adventure stories and mm. crime in terms of the famous five and the secret yeah. seven so we had that sort mm-hmm. of liking for crime that we carried through into adulthood that i don't think they've had have they no no I mean, I read the the Alex Ryder series um, by Anthony Horowitz, and uh, yeah, and I remember that being, you know, such a such a formative part of kind of my love for things like James Bond and you know, mm. Impossible series and those kind of adventure kind of you know, uh, somebody to save the world kind of stories, you know, that that have inevitably fed more into the kind of the granular kind of you know, macroscopic look that, that each, that, that you know, a, a detective brings to page, you know, like detectives don't save the world, but they save kind of somebody's world or something, you know? And, it's, mm. and I think as you, as you're, when you're a kid, you know, it's like, oh, one person dying, stakes not high enough, you know? It's like, oh, <laughs> back space with a nuclear bomb, oh, like, sign me up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I yeah, you do need high stakes. It's, um, that's true um now let's let's move into the other side of i mean clearly your writing career is is going well at the moment and um you know you dedicate passion to that but you've also brought your love of books to us through grindstone and the prize uh particularly and your podcast which it might be on hey at the moment but nonetheless um you have uh put a lot in and that's a lot of effort setting up something like the grindstone literary prize um so what motivated that um back before i enrolled in university i was you know still trying to become a traditionally published author in my kind of spare time um and it wasn't really working very well uh-huh. and um <laughs> you know i was uh i was entering competitions you know writing competitions and um <clears throat> and just found that there was this sentiment especially online from from me and and lots of other kind of fellow uh, aspiring authors that you sort of send an email with an attachment to a strange email address and you know you put some money in somebody's bank account or a paypal account and then six months later they announce somebody else's name you know on their <laughs> website and that was it and you never hear from them and there was, there was yes no of of kind of you know reciprocality you know where's my money going what are they reading my work you know what's what's happening after I send that, you know, that kind of that work off. And, and that's, you know, it's still an issue as well. A lot of the time in, you know, in traditional publishing with pitching, if you're pitching to agents, you know, like a lot of it, you know, a lot of agencies, uh, websites just say, if you haven't heard from us in 12 weeks, just assume we're not interested, you know, and that's, it's a tough pill to swallow for, for kind of writers who are, you know, who are not cynics, I suppose, like me, or, you know, people who have <laughs> run that gauntlet and, and, you know, experienced those sort of setbacks and, and, you know, who are still looking, you know, at the, at the world of kind of writing through, you know, rose tinted glasses, I suppose, because, you know, the, the reality is it's, it's harsh, you know, it's a harsh industry to try and make it in. 
So the the idea for for the kind of for grindstone came about with well, you know, I'm in uni, I'm reading lots anyway, I've got plenty of time on my hands, you know, could we set up a literary prize where we just have you know, small prizes and we just say, yeah, you know what, we're going to be almost, you know, we're not going to make you a bestseller, but if you send us our, you know, your work, what we'll do is we'll read it. We'll give you some feedback. We'll tell you kind of what we thought of it and we'll give writers who aren't in university um, and who don't have access to kind of, you know, feedback and, and kind of you know, reading groups and that kind of thing, you know, the opportunity to send their work to, you know, to a reader, to a writer, to, you know, get a little bit of sense of, you know, somebody's out there reading their work, you know, that they're not just kind of paying for nothing. And, um, and it just grew, you know, it's just one of those things that just kind of slowly, but surely, you know, over the course of five years now, it's just gone from a couple of flash fiction competitions and short story competitions, which is what it was in the winter of 2016, 2017, um, to now, uh, you know, one of the kind of largest literary prizes in the UK where, you know, agents are emailing us saying like, Hey, you know, do you have a, an agent judge for next year's competition? Because I'd love to do that because, you know, the last two or three winners have gone on to be, you know, best-selling authors and it's, and it's wild. And I'm, you know, and I'm sitting there thinking, I'm sure I sent a, a pitch to you last year and you didn't reply. So, you know, would it be <laughs> of me to not reply to you? But then I think no, no, it's actually for, you know, for the authors. And, uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's really rewarding to be able to kind of pick something out of a slush pile, as you know, and, you know, put it in front of the right people and the right readers yes. and see it just take hold, like, you know, like wildfire and, and see something that would have possibly otherwise slipped through the cracks, you know, and just kind of been washed away, you know, with the drain water to, to then go on and take hold and become something that means something to people. And, and for me, you know, and, you know, taking hold of, of, of an entry and, you know, putting it in the hands of an agent that I think it would be a good fit for, or, you know, putting it through to the shortlist and then sending it out to, you know, a host of agents at the end of the year, you know, that's something that I so wanted, you know, to be a thing when I was kind of trying to, to follow that path that it yeah. just, it's nice to be able to do that, you know, and there's, there's not enough breaks for authors when, you know, there's so much nepotism in this industry still, that's just unavoidable because, you know, it's not a bad thing. It's just, you know, and the nature of, of the beast in this industry and every other industry, you know, but for yeah, the it's very the common, isn't it? Is, yeah. But for the person who's got an amazing idea and just their manuscript needs a bit of polishing and they just don't quite know how to write a pitch or the synopsis isn't quite as good as it could be, you know, and then just every agent passes on it because they're making, you know, decisions after a few seconds of reading, you know, in their heads, it's, you know, to, to have the opportunity to kind of give those kind of authors a second chance or to really kind of, you know, champion their work, even if it's just one in a thousand that deserve it, you know, that's that's more than there would have been in the world otherwise. So it's, uh, yeah, it's still a project of passion and still earns no money and does nothing but give me kind of heartache and headaches as well. So <laughs> well, I mean, they're similar with us because um, we we um, provide feedback on, on all the submissions we get. And, you know, we don't get any anything financial from that, but we do get, I do, I get a sense of satisfaction from helping someone. Because sometimes I'll say, you know, it's not it's not a good fit for us, but can I give you some hints on how to do your covering letter or how to write your synopsis or how to present, you know, and yeah. 
So it's, I think it's, you're almost like sort of a, a a level below the agents. So they, I, I can imagine that they trust you in your judgment because it makes their life easier as well. And that, you know, they're finding people without having to read everything that they get sent. And yeah. And, and they are, and the thing that always kind of really, <clears throat> again, kind of humbles me a little bit and, and kind of really reframes the way that, that I think a lot of people, myself included, still view the industry is that, you know, these agents are not superhumans, you know, their kind of their opinion of what quality is, isn't necessarily, you know, the the blanket kind of uh, rule. It's, it's, you know, they're humans. They kind of, they read things and they like things, and they dislike things and they pick things up that are, you know, that resonate with them. But when you like something or dislike something, that doesn't always correlate with quality. And, you know, and, and sometimes I'll send a short list out to, you know, to an agent at the end of the competition or something or, or a long list and they'll come back and they'll say, oh, you know, like this is some really interesting thing. What were your thoughts on this one? Or, you know, which did you think was the strongest? And they'll say, oh, I think it was this one. And they're like, oh, you know what? I agree. I just wanted a second opinion. Or, you know, like I thought that was the case. Or I wasn't quite sure what was it about it that you liked or didn't like or what didn't resonate with you. And and it's, and you know, it's really nice to be able to kind of, think about you know agents as instead of big scary kind of you know you know shadowy faces in in this kind of corporate machine that's designed to keep you know authors down that they're just out there trying to like find one good manuscript that they like in amongst a thousand that you know are just not right for them or just Mm. you aren't ready for publication you know it's it's they have such a monumental job and i think that it's I think it's easy to kind of vilify them as well as the kind of, you know, these elitist kind of nepotistic people when actually, you know, they're just out there for the love of books. They're trying to keep this industry that everybody loves alive. And it's so Mm. hard because it's set up in a really archaic way that still makes it, I think, feel a little bit like an us against them scenario when actually it's, you know, it should be a collaborative, cooperative, you know, thing. And I, you know, like, uh, pitch pitch wars on twitter and and that kind of thing you know they are working to kind of precipitate change i think in a really positive way but it's you know i I don't know what a paradigmatic shift would look like you know i don't think anybody does and i don't think anybody's in a sole position to facilitate that themselves you know it's such a such a difficult landscape to kind of navigate and want to reshape it really takes well amazing depths of of uh, uh energy and self-belief and um faith and all sorts of um you know things that well, persistence, persistence but also ability to adapt yourself yeah yeah there, there is a challenge listen um we're conscious of time and i think it is time to <laughs> to change the conversation up to the greatest challenge in podcasting uh at present which is of course rebecca's random question right so my question is inspired by um, a documentary we watched this week didn't we uh, yes we did well I, I put something up on youtube um we were watching a documentary about the halcyon days of darts eric bristow jockey wilson that kind of era and then i said why don't we watch something a little bit more modern and there was a documentary about the wonderful the life of michael van gerwen <laughs> i'm not sure if michael van gerwen's resonated in your life but uh, Michael Van Gerwen, now the world number four, was number one, uh, otherwise known as Mighty Michael Van Gerwen. Uh, and he's Dutch, obviously, uh, judging by the name. He's won the world championship three times. And he 
<laughs> he does talk about the most prosaic things. Yeah, so the, the guy interviewed him, um, a bit like us, you know, asked him lots of pertinent questions about his career and how, playing darts. And then he, he asked him a, a fairly random question. And I said, oh, I'm going to use that in the random question section on a podcast. So the question is, which domestic task would you pay for someone to do if money wasn't an, wasn't a question? Oh, which domestic task? Um, picking all like the slimy bits of food out of the drain, I think, in the sink. <laughs> <laughs> that's my job. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a, that's a very man job, I think. As as much as we kind of have moved on as, uh, you know, striving towards equality, I, I find I'm still shafted with that job a lot in this house. So it's, uh, and sort of <laughs> the rubbish and taking the rubbish out as well. They They still feel... Like, well, yeah, you say exactly. taking the rubbish is a manly job, but the man in this house, I don't think he's well, maybe once taken the bin out. That's not entirely true, but it is true that you do, <laughs> on balance, good. take most of them out. But I do the slimy stuff. You create it, and I, I take it out. What do you mean I create the slimy stuff? It goes into the washing out, and then you leave it for, standing in a bowl for six hours, and then you pour it away. And it's by this point, it's become a congealed mass of... Well, I mean, you remember that scene from Withnail and I when they go into the kitchen? There's matter <laughs> growing in the sink. You know, it's alive. Um, that's, that's how the sink is. And I'm, I'm the one who puts the bleach down it and the one who finds these enzyme sticks to try and keep the thing flowing. Yeah. So yeah, right, okay. you, you touch the nerve here now. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I will try and take the slime out more often, or I'll pay for someone to come in and do it. <laughs> it's a good question. I mean, that is. I would, if I could find some somebody who could buff the shower to the point of hotel cleanliness every day. Oh, clean the toilets. Yeah, because I don't know what it is. I mean, unless you do it every day, they don't last very long, and they, you know. Limescale in this country is just well. It's Staffordshire. Legion, it's yeah. particularly limescale prone, isn't it? For some reason. Well, um, try living in Cambridge, where it's the hardest water, and you know, practically make concrete out of it. Just, just the water. Um, it's extraordinary. I'd like a chauffeur to take the children to school. I would yeah. love that. Yeah, you would love that. Yeah, we've. Uh... <laughs> it's called a taxi, love. No, it's called you. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. So, yeah, I mean, there's plenty of. I think. I think the list of household jobs that we wouldn't want to do, I think, probably gets pretty long and extensive. Um, but, uh... Yeah, and I think. I think you know. I always think of it. That's writing time that I've given up. Do you know what this makes me think of? So we, we were watching uh, Master Chef, the professionals, and some of the um, contestants are they, they're, they're private chefs, and I didn't really quite twig what this was until we were talking about it, and you know, a chef who. Uh, belongs to a household and does all the cooking mm-hmm. and i think if i had a private chef would i you know click my fingers and say i fancy a cheese and ketchup butty please would they do that for me yeah they would yeah they would yeah. <laughs> they'd probably put a mission and then go on professional on master chef well i mean like i could probably think of better uses for five grand a month to be honest <laughs> well yeah exactly exactly but we did naively when we started hope we were thinking this is gonna be hugely successful and we can we can uh, we can afford to have somebody make us lunch every day, so that we don't have to worry about that anymore. We can just con- concentrate on, you know, and, and when we have authors come to visit, of course, the chef can prepare a wonderful meal and impress them. That I is- don't actually remember that conversation. We did. We we we, we thought we'd have a. Uh, we thought we were going to move into Borth. Run. We'd run the company from Borth. We'd we'd get ourselves <laughs> a converted chapel or something, and there would be a sort of. 
uh, on the both seafront an, an, imp- an impressive kitchen that would have you know somebody making that, that still work. could happen <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think it's some way off yet i mean it's i mean do you do you see an infinite road in in amazon kind of publishing because i mean that's predominantly where you guys position uh, your your books right you know like we are, yeah. We do do some printing of paperbacks through traditional, through the printer. They get they appear on Amazon, but not through our dashboard. So we sort of. Well, I, I I think I think our thinking around the Amazon ecosystem is that at least with with that, um, you can focus your bucks on you know one retailer, mm. um, and that isn't necessarily going to be the sustainable model forever but kindle unlimited is a pretty compelling revenue driver at the moment um some of our books um at, at present one of our best-selling books is 75 percent page reads income so you know that is a very hard thing to think you go wide and, and, and do that am i happy with the way that we're treated as a company by amazon absolutely not no it's, we've, we've had a few run-ins haven't we yeah and you know it uh, there are wrinkles all the time in that relationship if you can call it that because it's very one-sided well, it's, a, it's a relationship with a robot isn't it yeah effectively um and so you know i i, I actually the premise of one of my sci-fi novels <laughs> <laughs> some people pay for that but yeah. I, I think i think that you know the aspiration of all of our authors i'm sure is that they would love us to be, you know, slightly more traditional in the sense that we can click our fingers and command shelf space in Waterstones or Mm. Barnes & Noble. Mm. But realistically, that isn't the case at this stage. No, I mean, we're getting, in in 18 months, we we now do have some books in Waterstones and independent bookshops where at the very beginning, we didn't really stand a chance. No, we didn't. No, we didn't. (laughs) And, you know, the more... more, uh, you know, recognition that we get and the you know, the longer we, we stay in business, um, in the business, the, the stronger that will become. And, you know, and we know that the quality of the books that we're producing is certainly worthy of shelf space, but yeah. that is not the same as somebody who can pay to get to the front table at Waterstones or WH Smiths. And that's... Or to that, be on the Judy and Richard book. And if, and if, you know, if throwing money um, at Amazon is one way of getting books into people's hands or ebooks uh it's an even more pernicious game when you're doing bricks and mortar mm-hmm. so it is it, it's a really tough um thing i don't think i have a vision for how publishing is going to shake down in five years what's mm-hmm. clearly happening in the indie sector is that more and more uh i suppose content digital content um agglomerates are buying up indie publishers bloodhound being a recent example um for the access to the content now that is uh, and i don't want to cause aspersions but you know you hear from bloodhound authors that essentially the emphasis on producing books seems to have dried up in recent weeks uh, and the conversations they would have had previously are not quite the same as they were so um ultimately uh, and I think people like Joanna Penn are sort of clear on this. Intellectual property. This is the, the game that you're in at the moment. It's a, you know, you're creating intellectual property and it will manifest itself in different formats. And that's where the value is. 
but that's not the same as publishing. Um, oh, that's very profound. I like that. It's not. It's not. It's not as we know publishing today. And, um, you know, if you're creating stuff that is going to have... Let's, let's take, for example, J.K. Rowling. When she wrote Harry Potter, she wanted to get a traditional publisher. She wanted to get a, her voice out there, get a kid's book out there. And it has become everything. You know, it has every facet possible way of exploiting that intellectual property has been taken. Do you know what? That reminds me. A friend of mine posted on Facebook that she was really happy with her Harry Potter fairy lights around her makeup mirror. <laughs> <laughs> That's how far Harry Potter is. Yeah, and, and ultimately, you know, I'm not saying that you know you're gonna, everyone's going to sit down and write a fantasy series that is going to, you know, compete with Game of Thrones. A lot of lot of people are trying to do that. Um, ultimately, I think that there are many, many ways and formats that we, <laughs> at this time, don't know are coming down the pipe yeah. that will, um, you know, that will be uh, fueled by what we now hold in our hands as a Kindle or a book. Mm. Are you, uh, are you looking forward to the UK release of Kindle Vela? Is that something on your radar? Well, yeah, yeah well, it is. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, I was ask, I think, let, let, let's make that a sort of final discussion point, if you like, because sure. I don't know, you're over in the, in the, stateside sort of side of things so you'll probably see kinder vela sort of picking up i don't i haven't really taken a close look at it in terms of, i know how it works i don't know who's making it work though i mean i don't know if uh you know it's, I, I, um, it's a it's a whole different market space it's only available in north america it's not available in canada yet or the uk um but it's but it's a whole different market space and instead of working on um money it actually works on tokens so you spend 15 pounds and you get 1600 tokens and then one token equates to 10 pages um, of reads so when somebody puts an episode up uh, amazon calculates the number of words in it and then it decides on how many tokens it will take somebody to read it um, and then they spend tokens and they read and consume that way and you know you make money on the back end uh, less so than you would um if you publish a novel a, a a Kindle book at one ninety nine, but more than if you published it at ninety nine pence. It's about fifty percent, I think. Uh, but don't quote me on that. But it's mm. for me the for me the beauty of that, and what I'm really looking forward to is being able to begin a novel that I feel really pushes the boundaries of what people might enjoy, with zero commitment to writing a hundred thousand words. Yes, that's true. So I can I can say, oh well. This isn't an idea that I would invest, you know, hundreds of hours in to write the entire novel because I don't know if it would gain traction. Um, but I'm happy to explore the first five or 10,000 words in an episodic format and put three or four episodes out. And if people like it and there is that kind of demand, then I could decide, you know, do I want to invest in this as a novel? And even if you just write it episodically, you know, a couple every month or, or whatever you want to do and it takes you eight months to write the entire book, then you can just collate those episodes into a Kindle novel and release it on Kindle as well. So I think whether or not it's going to be the next big thing on its own, I don't know, but I think that it will become a great kind of testing ground and will become, you know, the home of kind of experimental fiction from authors who have had to tread carefully thus far. And that's what I'm excited, yeah. excited to see. Yeah, I'm quite excited now. I'd, think, I'd like to try something. Yeah, no, I, I, 
I, it has appealed to me for, for sure. You know, that fact that, you know, I mean, I have such a short attention span that mm. uh, sustaining the effort needed to, to create a novel is, is has proved difficult. But, you know, if I was releasing a couple of chapters on a weekly basis. I which would spare you one. It would. Yeah, you know, People you would. People said, come on, when's the next But I think, I think that generationally, who it's presumably set up to to appeal to is a younger generation than than my own mm. um and indeed that traditional book market that you were talking about the crime market you know the 50 plus generation who who have grown up with those stories um i wonder whether the the real appeal i mean i think it will appeal to romance fans for sure oh yeah um romance fans rather romantic yeah. i like romance <laughs> well I, yeah but as a, not as a as, concept <laughs> not as a literary thing but i think that there is you know, they're voracious readers and actually that thrill of being left on a on a cliffhanger in a relationship story oh would, it, well any story i would, mean would would, would I mean, work, a good example it? is you, so you've been writing your book for a while now and when you have a writing spurt and you read it out to me and then you stop i get quite cross with you come on I want to know what happens next. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm, yeah, it's mm-hmm. sort of feeding on that. You know, okay, that was great, but <laughs> what I've always said is, if Ken, if Charles Dickens was around now, he'd be on Vella. Oh, he'd totally yeah. be on Vella. That was the whole point of him. He wanted, yeah, it to you know everybody to read his work, not just the posh Victorians in their drawing rooms with their pianos. Quite. <laughs> and that's their um, that's their that's their blurb. If you go to the Kindle Vella website, and it you know. It says, uh, you, you know, uh, Tolstoy and Dickens and, you know, so many others published serially, you know, one one chapter in each kind of weekly paper. And that's how, you know, that's how kind of great novels got put together. And that's why they went on far too long, because they got paid by the word rather than... That's <laughs> true. No, it's, it's very so, true. Yes. I... Yeah. But uh, I think what it will do is, I think it will open up um, the market in a really interesting way. And I've been... I've been anticipating and hoping for the novella to make some sort of a return for a while now. And I know that a lot of authors are putting out short novels in the region of kind of 40, 50, 60,000 words, but I would sink my teeth into the idea of being able to kind of say, you know what, this character in my story, or I have an idea for this kind of story, but it only got 15 or 20,000 words in it. And that's too long for a short story just to send in an email. And it's too long, you know, it's too short for a novel to put up for 99 pence but I could put it up on Bella in three segments and that mm. would be something that I could use to add kind of value to, you know, my existing universe. Or, you know, if I said, you know what, I really want to write sci-fi and fantasy or dystopia again. And, you know, you just create a different pen name and you just put something up on Bella every now and then. I think that the it's hopefully going to be creativity unbridled. And I really hope that we don't just see, you know, authors producing the novels that they are splitting them up into episodes and then overcharging readers for them. Um, Mm. I think that's the kind of the dark side of it that's looming from where I'm sitting. But I think in terms of challenging readers and saying like, Hey, spend 20 pence, read the first three, 4,000 words of this thing that you're not sure you're going to like, that's very little risk from where they're sitting. And, you know, gives us the opportunity to really kind of stretch our legs and not think before we put pen to paper, Ooh, is this going to be something readers like, you know, I, I hate second guessing myself, but you know, it's a, it's a game of inches in this, you know, in this, in this market. <laughs> Hoping that Bella will, you know, allow us to kind of, you know, play a little bit more fast and loose. That would be a real um, enjoyable, I think, upturn in the kind of Kindle landscape. 
Yeah, and that, and that will feed into the, a change in the style of books as well. So, mm. well, that's a, an optimistic and a positive way to finish. Um, it's really been a pleasure to speak. It's to been you. fascinating. It has actually, yeah. yeah, it really has been. Um, you know, a lot of things to take away and, and think about. But uh, we wish you every success with the books, obviously, with Vela uh, and the bears <laughs> and the bears uh, <laughs> and your new life in Canada, which is very, very exciting. It's very and tempting, we'll, actually. And we'll keep- <laughs> We'll, well keep I mean, our eye out for all things Brianstone too. <laughs> and uh, yeah, may the dog remain safe. Yes, yeah. please keep the dog safe. <laughs> he is he is champing at the bit to fight the bear. Um, oh. My my partner's taking him for a walk up to the kind of the mountain this morning to give us a bit of peace. And um, and when she walked past there last week, she sort of snapped a photo of a sign that said, uh, "Bears live here. Don't make any noise." So, um, and, uh, and, then the, and then she sent a video 10 seconds later of the dog running around like a headless chicken barking as loudly as he possibly could um, <laughs> in that exact area so you know it's um, we'll see we'll see what happens he might get eaten by a bear I hope he doesn't but you know it's um, that's his own lookout yeah. <laughs> <laughs> poor thing I know, he's come no, from he's... Wales he's not used to being told no. <laughs> there are bears here around here <laughs> clearly no, I know. really we have tried to tell him, but he's not been very receptive thus far. <laughs> You'll get the idea. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Dan okay. Morgan, thank you so much for your time and uh, for joining us on the Hopcast. Oh, yeah, thank you. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. I think you can see after listening to that why we split it into two, because we didn't want to miss a moment of it. It was a really important interview. It was brilliant. Yeah. No BS, straight talking, you know, some tough discussions and another Fantastic. Rebecca's random question. Of <laughs> well, they're all good, aren't they? Yeah, they are. <laughs> so next week's guest, um, we're going to be speaking to him. Andy Hill. Andy Hill, shortly. Yeah, Whose you... book publishes, uh, so when this podcast goes out, his book published yesterday. Fantastic. So. Yeah, Andy, uh, we yeah, she submitted to us. Uh, we didn't uh, option it, but nonetheless, we met him at Harrogate. And he's one of the nicest guys. Oh, he's lovely. Yes. Yeah, he really we're is. We're Facebook friends now, aren't we? So. Yeah, absolutely. And he's always supporting whatever social media that we put out there. He's liking and supporting yeah, and sharing. No, so he... we're extremely grateful. But Andy, congratulations on the publication of your first book. And we look forward to speaking to you in the Hopcast next week. And watch out for the random question. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> and we have got, we've had a number of yeses from some really good names of people to come. I, I'm very excited about our schedule of, uh, of programs to come now the interesting thing is we we always used to organize the podcast very much on an ad hoc basis like oh we need someone for next week oh who can we ask how about mm. this person and it would usually work out fine there was a couple of weeks where we were um sort of <laughs> the last minute but i have now started a spreadsheet oh god I hate spreadsheets. I know you do, but <laughs> it's it's made a big difference because it stops me getting my weeks confused, which I was guilty yeah, of sometimes. There was, there was an element of that, yeah. And I look at the spreadsheet and I think, like you were just saying, we've got some great people coming up. Yep, we have. And we're looking to different aspects and, as, um, you know, facets of the publishing industry. We're trying to, you know, reach deeper into it. So uh, we've been approaching quite a number of people who perhaps haven't really registered on podcasts uh, terribly much before. Mm. But uh, we just want to bring you, I mean, bring ourselves as well. We want to make connections. But at the same time, we want to, you know, really find out 
about different aspects of the business. So, for instance, we have one of the best audiobook narrators in the world coming on the programme soon. I know. I'm really excited about that. We have one of the queens of current cosy crime. Yeah, and she doesn't live too far away, but that's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Um, so, really, really good. And we've got somebody who is the best I've ever seen. She does this for a hobby. Rebinds books. <laughs> And and her, her 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 shelves are amazing, but also she's an author. So um, lots and lots of exciting people to come. And of course, we've got our own Hobeck authors as they release books this year. Yeah, uh, we'll be and to we're them. hoping to get some people to talk to us at the London Book Fair for the podcast. Oh, we're going to do yeah. Well, I mean, the aspiration is that not only are we going to be starting negotiation and doing some proper business, is that we're going to make a daily podcast from the London Book Fair. Um, so I'll be burning the midnight oil to get those up for you. <laughs> But we want to bring you the spirit of the London Book Fair and the people that we speak to there. And um, we'll be looking at all facets of the industry Mm. and getting, you know, taking the temperature. But we want to go and speak to people like Clay's who will be there in force and just for them to explain what they can do for small publishers like us, but also what can be done about the costs. Yeah. Um, And uh, there's some interesting things we can find out about trends in publishing, you know, what agents are out there looking for at the moment. Uh, judging by what publishers think they want. So we talked about last week being, you know, an emphasis on joy, cosy crime, fun, humour, lifting our spirits after the the pandemic. Uh, And that's why we're signing some really dark (laughs) (laughs) crime novelists Uh, (laughs) at present. No, no. But we we do have a fair amount of joy in our current portfolio. We do. And I'm reading one now, so. (laughs) You are. So the week ahead, yeah, lots and lots and lots of meetings. Oh, we have. Yes, we do. Pretty um, much every day, isn't it? Uh, I think so. And I also have a couple of meetings as well. So that doesn't help. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't. I'm still without wheels, which doesn't do any good for me and you know, any sort of uh, flexibility in life. But um, it's meant that I've been working. You know, so. He has been working very hard. And yes, yeah, so he has to borrow my car. <laughs> he needs a car. Yeah. Yeah. It's been <laughs> it's been really it's been really good, actually, to finally get the blinkers off and get working you know at, on demand as opposed to when i'm when i'm able to yeah and you know we've talked about all the sort of uh, health issues that I've, I've had over the last few months i mean yeah, myriad but um at least some of the brain fog is clearing i had a morning of really bad brain fog this week it was dreadful and i was not a happy bunny and i made life everyone's everyone's life a misery when you so say everyone <laughs> you i made your life a misery and the cats I, it wasn't a misery but it was hard to get you to recognize that the only solution was to go somewhere do something that wasn't trying to work when you clearly weren't going to be very no productive and, and i can't you know it for those of you who never experienced it uh, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but it is just the weirdest sensation that is so irritating and difficult when you know you've got things you want to achieve and you cannot do it. And you actually cannot even make a cup of coffee. It's that bad. I couldn't remember how to put together the ingredients for a cup of coffee on the machine and all well, that stuff. Well, you actually, so you did take yourself off. We, you had to pick up something from Argos and you went to the wrong Argos. So that is a good illustration. Yeah, of... and then I, I, I got myself in trouble in, in Sainsbury's because they, I mean, their store, det- the store detective started following me around. I could tell who it was um, because every time I looked over my shoulder, there would be someone, you know, pretending to look at an item but looking at me because I was going round and round and round, and I couldn't remember where to find the two or three things that I was looking for. 
I couldn't remember where they were. I couldn't even remember what they were. And I was hoping that I might just stumble upon what, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be buying. Because mm. I didn't have a list with me. It was only like I wanted some gluten-free flour. Could I remember where the gluten-free section is? Could I remember what the flour looked like when I got there? No, I couldn't. Went to the wrong Argos. They quietly pointed out that it's the one a mile and a half down the road. <laughs> Went there and picked up these items. Then it turned out they were massively heavy. It was two sets of shelves because we wanted to tidy up the kitchen a bit. And um, I had an awful job trying to figure out how to put this thing down safely because they, they were too big and heavy to carry. And I got into the car and I needed to get my key out. It took me about five minutes to figure out how to do that. It really was bad. Now, so I, um, I, of course I understand, but I, what made me understand much, much better was two days later, I was coming down with a migraine. Mm-hmm. And um, when I have a migraine, it's it's not as bad as, um, so my youngest Toby had a migraine on Monday and he completely floors him. He's really, really quite poorly. For me, I get uh, one of my one eye is not functioning properly and I get brain fog. It may be hormonal as well because of my age, and I know that's a common symptom, but I had almost the same sort of issues you did. I kept telling you we had a meeting on a certain day when we clearly didn't. Yeah. I kept, I um, one of our authors, I kept sending her the wrong thing. I kept, there was all sorts of things, you know, and she was very understanding. <laughs> um, but it, mm. it's debilitating. It really is. Yeah, it really is. And yeah. when you're forcing yourself to function, you're actually yeah. not doing anyone any favours. No. No, you have to retreat. I mean, today I've woken up really energised. It's a Saturday we're recording this. Normally you do it on a Sunday, but uh, I need to get up north to see family uh, on the Sunday. And, you know, I feel really energised today. And I know that I'm going to have a really good day. Yeah. Um, but there are other times I'll get out of bed and it's all I can do to remember how to do my teeth. You know, it's 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 awful. And, um, I mean, we've been talking about it in our diary. We've been keeping a daily diary which was a battle yesterday because it was about 10 o'clock when we sat down and did it um, after a sort of fretful trip back from Wolverhampton for some wonderful Japanese food. But um, we're jabbering again. Uh, But anyway. (laughs) Again, the we. But, but, you know, we got the diary done. We've kept it going. But in the diary, we've been noting the days when we've been out of step with each other. We've been out of step with ourselves. The issues that we've faced, the other days when things are euphoric. But another thing I've been discussing is some, uh, well, I would say under-the-counter medication that I've been taking, which was recommended to me, which I can't get on the NHS, to help my brain fog. And it has been amazing. And I take it in very small doses, irregularly, when I need it. And it's just the best thing. And, um, yeah. You know, long may that continue. I hope I'm not sort of doing myself any long-term damage. But, uh, you know, it's it's a, it's a delicate subject to talk about. But that's something that I've had to try and find something to reduce the days where I was lost to the attention deficit disorder or anything else that was going on. Mm. Diabetes also affects me very, very badly. Well, you've sometimes. had lots of things recently. You've had the tooth issues. Mm-hmm. You've had shoulder issues, which means yeah, that when you're doing something yeah. repetitive with a mouse... yeah. Which um, yeah, editing right, my, audio? My right shoulder is in, 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 in needs an operation, basically. Um, diabetes, and uh, what else we could throw in there? Oh, I've had some cardiac issues, so I'm being, <laughs> being monitored for that. 
it's not looking good. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't be applying for life insurance right now, that's for sure. But, but we have enjoyed our best fortnight to date on regular sales. That has given us a spring in our step and a new purpose and a, a feeling that, you know, we are making progress. Mm. As indeed, reading great submissions gives us purpose. Finishing an audiobook project, in my case, gave me some purpose. Yeah, sending books off, the files off, the final files off. So um, Fair Game by R.D. Nixon, that the final files were sent off yesterday. Uh, the Chemist, we had advanced copies of The Chemist arrive this week. Yeah. It's lovely. It looks lovely. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> it really does. And it's a great book. I so, like stroking it. Yeah, you do. You, do. you get very <laughs> excited with the book opening, boxes, box opening. Uh, yeah. we had, Long may we have that smell of fresh books. It's amazing filling the house. Um, so, yeah, lots and lots of positives. And that's what we're trying to emphasize. I think by the end of last year, we were worn out, actually. And um, we gave ourselves a few days of lighter duties over Christmas. And that's made all the difference. I think if I hadn't, you'd, I, you'd, you'd, I'd, I was exhausted. Christmas, yeah. I really was. Yeah, you were. You were. Yeah. You'd, um, I was really worried about you. But we're back with some energy and we've got some lovely plans. We've got some great plans coming up for Crime Fest. We're going to be there in force. We've got Hobeck authors signing up to go. So Yeah, it's um, a good little gang of us. Yeah, a gang of us representing the company and representing, you know, each other. Uh, and we're looking forward to that. And we've got, you know, some exciting authors lined up to announce soon. We're going to get it into the bookseller this time. <laughs> you say that every gonna, time. Well, we are. We are. We have swooped. We have scooped. We have uh, snatched. We have uh, snared. No, snafood is no. Oh, is no. that not the right word? No. What is snafu then? Oh, God, I can't put that on air. It's a mistake, isn't Situana- it? Situation normal. All effed up. That's what they. Used, oh, so you don't, what the you, GIs used to say in the in the Pacific. You don't snafu an author, then. No, you certainly don't. <laughs> oh sorry. my God, I am so sorry. Let's end this podcast now before we we get ourselves into any more trouble. You have been listening to the Hobcast Book Show. I'm Adrian Hobart. Um, I'm the one who doesn't know <laughs> the meaning of words, Rebecca Collins. Yeah, you're the potty mouth. Don't forget to go to our website www.hobeck.net for all details of our authors, our offers. Uh, audiobooks, our blog, the lot. It's all there. Uh, also, uh, I would recommend subscribing to this podcast, please. Uh, we've actually joined another four platforms this week, so there are hopefully new new joiners from, from Stitched and other platforms around the world. Welcome, Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show. And we're here every week with the show. Next week, Andy Hill, our guest. But for now, may we wish you a wonderful and creative week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.